Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 19th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into my guest's life journey, one that may be very different than you'd expect. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. My special guest today is a remarkable human being on a remarkable journey. While I know he's a mere mortal, I have a hard time believing it. I'm beyond grateful we have the gift of getting to know and learn from him. From the unlikeliest of circumstances, he made his way to play professional football for the New England Patriots and New York Jets over an 11-year NFL career, performing at the most elite levels. He is one of the top 10 running backs of all time earning the sport's ultimate honor, being inducted into the Hall of Fame with the class of 2012. It was legendary coach Bill Parcells who brought him to the Jets, which was not an obvious move. When questioned, coach responded, one thing you guys don't understand about this man is that not only will he be the best player on this team, he will also be the best person on this team. You don't understand how he'll impact this locker room. He's going to make everybody on this team much better and will be a better team. What's even more inspiring to me is that his impact on the world is still in its early stages. With the deepest humility and pure awe, I warmly welcome Curtis Martin to the show. Curtis, thrilled you're joining me on Our Voices. I'm thrilled to be here, Molly. Thanks for having me. This is a real treat uh, for folks all around the world and probably most of all me. Uh, Getting to know ourselves, Curtis, for who we really are, as in what matters to us and why, decisions about who we listen to, what we're good at, what we're not, uh, and when the going gets tough, where we find the grace to overcome it and emerge stronger. This is a lifetime's journey of ups, downs, twists, and turns, um, and I appreciate you sharing the road uh, to becoming you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Uh, Definitely my pleasure. So to start wherever you'd like to start and give folks a little bit of insights. And um, then I think I'd love to segue into some of the the things you've learned as an adult and a lot of exciting things in your own, um, in your, in your current portfolio. Okay. Should I start with my, I guess my background or. Yeah. Start when you grew up, wherever you'd like to start to give people a little bit of sense of uh, how you've become you. Okay. So. I grew up in a little town called Homewood. It's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I grew up in, at the time, it was one of the most violent neighborhoods in the country per capita. And the interesting thing is that my household was, I would say, even more volatile than the environment that I grew up in. I had a father who was extremely um, abusive to my mother, not necessarily to me. Um, The abuse impacted me indirectly. Uh, He was strung out on drugs and he was also diagnosed 
uh, with mental illness. And back then, all of the treatments that they had today weren't in place. And so many of those episodes were taken out on my mother. And I was that little four-year-old, five-year-old kid who was trying to fight my father and punching him in the back of his legs while he had my mother on the ground. And, you know, there were times where I saw my mother come home from work for lunch and have to go back to work wearing sunglasses with a black eye. Um, some of these things really impacted me deeply. One of the things that I'm grateful for is that as traumatic, traumatic and negative as they may have been, what I've been able to do throughout life is to use those things as fuel and to use those things as motivation. You know, I always tell people that I feel for much of my life, I had to learn in reverse because the environment that I grew up in, I didn't have any positive role models. The first positive role model I feel like I've had in my life was Bill Parcells, and that wasn't until I got into the NFL. I went through before I got there. Um, you know, so my father was probably gone by the time I was six years old, and we were so poor that my mother couldn't afford a babysitter. And the babysitter was maybe $10 a day, if I'm not mistaken, back then. And she couldn't afford $10. You know, that was $50, $60 extra a week that we didn't have. And so she taught me at six years old to stay in the house by myself. So I would walk home with, you know, all the neighborhood kids. It was somewhat of a project type of environment. So a lot of the older kids walked with the younger kids to school because we all went to the same school and we all walked home together. And, um, you know, my mother wouldn't allow me to go outside after school because she didn't want anyone to ever know that I was unattended because, of course, CYS would have taken me. So many days when I was six or seven years old, I had to stay in the house by myself till eight, nine o'clock at night when my mother got home from working her three jobs. Um, she taught me how to make myself something to eat and you know, I was too afraid to go to sleep until she came home. But that was kind of much of my childhood. Um, I started living with my grandmother um, by the time I was eight, nine. You know, I lived back and forth between the two. Uh, she didn't live too far from our house. And one day we walk in and we find my grandmother murdered. I mean, brutally murdered with a broken neck and eyes wide open and a butcher knife like going through her chest through her heart and coming out her back and the, the knife was actually you know embedded into the bed actually so, you know coming out of her back and going into the bed um and my mother had to see her mother lying there like that which was devastating and she says that the only thing that stopped her from literally losing her mind was that at nine years old when this happened I came to her and I grabbed her hand and I said, mom, are you going crazy? And she says, no. She asked why I asked her that. I said, well, I'm asking you because if you go crazy, then no one will be here to raise me. And I'll have to stay at home by myself all the time. And for me as a nine-year-old, my understanding of crazy was my father. And he was always gone in and out of jail or in and out of a mental institution. 
And that was the way I envisioned my mother if she lost it behind my grandmother. And she said that that's what gave her the strength to make it through that time. Um, when I was 13, my third mother, who was my mother's sister, my, she was like a third mother to me. She was burned to death. And that was another devastating time. And, you know, to sum it all up, by the time I was 14, that was the first time I was almost killed. And by the time I was 15, I had a loaded gun to my head. The gun, the trigger was pulled at least eight times. No bullet came out and not pointing the gun at me. The guy pulls the trigger one time and the bullet came out. And I was too young to recognize that, wow, that was, maybe that was what they call a miracle, <laughs> you know? And, and, um, and so by the time I was 20 years old, growing up in that environment, I had at least 35 to 40 of my friends or family members that didn't just die, but had been murdered, you know, as a, a little kid, you know, I remember I was a fresh little kid, you know, I liked older women. So there was this, there was this woman who was much older than me. And, you know, she used to joke and call me her little boyfriend. <laughs> and I took so much pride in being her little boyfriend. And um, uh, I'll never forget one day they found her wrapped up in a carpet. Some people wrapped her up in the carpet and beat the carpet with bats until she died. And um, I think it was some type of drug situation going wrong. Uh, but I grew up in this type of environment and to some extent became a product of my environment and developed a very hard heartedness and a very um, survival mentality. And um, at some point in my life, uh, and to be specific, when I was 20 years old, going into my senior year, I believe, of on my junior year of college, uh, I decided that, you know what? I need to get my life together or I'm going to be a statistic just like all of my friends and all of my family. Um, you know, I only have two friends out of all the people I know that I grew up with who hasn't been either in jail, shot, or killed. And I always thought that I would die before I was 21. And so when I was 20, I decided that I was going to live the last year of my life as best as I knew how. And I began to make a change slowly but surely. I went to church for the first time and never prayed before, but looked up at the ceiling in the church and said, well, God, I think you're up there. And if, if you're real, I'll make a deal with you. You know, you just let me live past 21 and I'll try to get my life together. I give you my word, you know? And for me, I was talking to God, like he was this one of my homeboys out on the street, and, you know, and I said, listen, man, um, I mean, like verbatim, said, listen, man, I don't know nothing about you or the Jesus cat that everybody talk about, but you let me live past 21, and I promise I'll get my life together. And, you know, I'm 48 today, and I feel like, you know, not to push my beliefs on anyone, but I, I've literally seen several times that my life was spared. So I do believe that there is a real God. And um, uh, I feel like he upheld his end of the bargain. And I've been spending my life trying to uphold my end of the bargain, which is just, you know, living the best life that I can, the best way I know how. So that's a, it wasn't a quick story, but I guess that's my background. 
Well, that, um, you know, people talk about what literally doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And now um, if it wasn't clear to folks before, it is now um, what gives you the ultimate, ultimate spiritual strength. Curtis, and um, I'm thanking God that you are here. So uh, I appreciate that he stuck, he, she stuck to the deal. That's awesome. Um, you know, so you come out, it's a miracle you're alive and you're like, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get my life together. So, you know, I had I'd done some looking and I, and I know when you ended up getting drafted, actually, it was not actually this joyous occasion with your family. And maybe you could share with listeners the, the learning that you had about this situation and, and how you embraced it and when maybe at first uh, you didn't. Yeah, it's interesting because the only reason I played football um, and actually my senior year of high school was because um, I, by that time, by the time I was a senior in high school, at least 20-something of my friends had been killed and a guy who was my childhood best friend, my senior year, he was the quarterback of a football team. And um, mistaken identity, this little place we all used to hang out, someone thought he was someone else and jumped out of the car with a shotgun and shot this 17-year-old boy point-blank range in the chest with a shotgun and with a big hole in his chest. And he ran about 50 yards and collapsed and died. And my mother said to me after that, she said, listen, Kurt, I don't care what it is that you do. Play baseball, basketball, football, join the glee club, join the band. I don't care. Just do something to keep you from this neighborhood for a couple extra hours. And football was just the most natural fit. I didn't want to play football. I liked playing football recreationally, but I didn't want to play organized football. But I played. And my senior year, I ended up breaking all the like records in that division and got offers for scholarships. And, you know, for me, college wasn't realistic. So I'm looking at it like, what am I going to do with this scholarship? And I, I accepted and went to college and um, fast forward to my, you know, me getting drafted. I'll never forget, you know, all my family and friends are at the house and we're watching the draft. And, you know, before they, your name flashes across the screen. They'll call you just to make sure that you're okay with them drafting you and all that. So I get a phone call and it's Bill Parcells. And he says, hello, son. We want to know that uh, if you'd be interested in being a New England Patriot. And I told him, I said, um, well, yeah, yes, sir. And thank you. And we hang up the phone and everyone's cheering. And when everything calmed down, I just told everyone, I said, I really don't want to do this. Like, this is not what I planned on doing with my life. And there was a guy there who said to me, he said, Curtis, listen, maybe all those wonderful things that you say you want to do for this neighborhood and for, you know, people, maybe football is just the vehicle that's going to enable you to do that. Maybe this is just the way God is blessing you for Maybe this is the vehicle that, you know, you'll be able to use to do all of those things. And from that moment on, football kind of took on a different meaning. I, I, I used football and saw football as this vehicle for me to do good. I felt like every touchdown I scored, every yard I gained, it just opened up more doors for me to reach more people. And so um, at the core of everything I do, 
there's that component where I want to impact people's lives um, in a positive way in some manner. And I, and I enjoy finding very creative ways to do that. And with a lot of the business that I do, there's always some component to that business that has a silver lining of impacting lives. And so, um, yeah, that's the story about me getting drafted. And that's what gave me my desire to play and be committed or as committed as I was to football. And it gave me a slight love for football, not because I might plan it, but because of what it allowed me to do. Wow. That's really extraordinary. When you think about, you know, all the hard work, like just the physicality, the pain and and what have you, I'm just wondering, was it hard for you having come from where you came from? Um, I'm just wondering how you felt about the journey of putting it all in there. Well, you know, the difficult thing about the hard work was that it required commitment. It required discipline. Things that I didn't naturally have coming from that environment, you know, um, and things that I wasn't necessarily taught and wasn't like really driven into me as a kid. Um, but the hard work aspect was something that I never had a problem with. You know, I watched my mother work so hard to raise me that there was something that I gleaned from her mentality and her approach towards work. And so um, I wasn't even sure that I could survive or play in the NFL. I didn't necessarily think that I was that good. And my experience in organized football was so minimal that I, I kind of doubted myself. But the one thing that I knew was that I might not be as talented. I wasn't the biggest, strongest, fastest, quickest guy, but I knew that I was tough. And so I, I made it my point to be the toughest guy and to work harder than anyone. I wanted to outwork everyone because I felt like that was the one thing that was within my control. As a matter of fact, um, kind of quick story as it pertains to that. I remember we're in practice one day and Bill Parcells calls me out of practice. And this is after I'm with the New York Jets. And he asked me, he says, son, have you been working hard? I said, of course, Kurt. I mean, of course, coach. Um, I'm not good enough to not work hard. I have to outwork everybody on this team, not just the other running backs, but I said, coach, I try to outwork everybody, even you. I try to outwork the secretaries, the janitors, the entire organization. I want to be the hardest worker in the entire Jets organization. I said, but why would you ask me that? And he says, son, I just want to make sure you're not fooling yourself. I said, well, like, well what does that mean? He says, as long as you live, Curtis, never forget this. He said, there's a big difference between routine and commitment. He said, most people just do the same routine over and over again. Some people might even get better at doing that same routine over and over again. But there's few people who commit to the next level. And that just stuck with me. And I took that principle, the difference between routine and commitment, and I applied it to every facet of my life, whether it was, you know, my work, my job, my career with the Jets, um, my NFL career whether it was charity, whether it was, 
my businesses, whether it was, you know, my relationships, I apply that principle in my marriage now, you know, so that marriage, I mean, that principle has uh, been highly used throughout every facet of my life, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, uh, I, I apply that difference between routine and commitment to everything. I'm always trying to commit to the next level. Oh my God, so inspiring. And I just can't imagine that this man, uh, Coach Parcells, you know, like, wow, the ability for him to, for you to have met him and to unleash all that's within you, just like, that's so fabulous. Um, Curtis, when you ran, you know, I imagine, you know, like a company and organization, the team, there's folks who um, don't work so hard, they don't have the work ethic or perhaps doing things that you would view as um, not so smart to do. I'm just wondering how, you know, as a young person, how did you navigate and find the the friends and the role models who you felt were the good ones? And when people didn't have behaviors that worked for you, you know, how did you handle those kinds of, of uh, situations? Well, you know, I've always been around behaviors that I didn't want to be or that I didn't agree with. And I think the, tr the saying is true that, you know, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Well, I wanted a different future. And so while I couldn't avoid but to have a certain group of friends, I was very conscious to not repeat their actions and not to follow their actions. I wanted to position myself as the leader and the one who would influence them to follow my actions uh, versus the other way around. And so I think that what's really important in a situation like that, because some of us just don't have the opportunity to be around a better group of people. But I think that what's really important, what I found to be very helpful for me was that I took time to get to know myself and who I am because I wanted to define myself. I didn't want to allow my circumstances or my background or my environment or my friends or anyone to define me. I wanted to define myself. And as I got to know myself and as I began to define myself, I was able to walk in that confidence versus having to fit into some other group. You know, like I said, I was around people who, I wanted to do the opposite of what they did. And I, there's this principle that says, you know, if you fail to define yourself, then other people will define you and then they'll judge you according to their definition of you. No, I want to be judged according to my definition of myself. You know, I, I, I refuse to be defined by, um, you know, a lot of times people who may not know me are may not have my best interests at hand. And it's a very difficult thing to do. It's much easier said than done, especially in certain situations. But I'm just literally grateful that I was able to do it. I call this do the work and this define yourself. So can we go there a little bit more? When you think about defining yourself, who were some of the folks or what were some of the situations that kind of um, brought yourself front and center to you? Um, some of the situations that, well, I think that the impact 
of traumatic events, they can have such a profound, a negatively profound impact on your life that they begin to define you. You know, there's so many people who grew up in the same environment that I grew up in. And if you talk to them, the environment that they come from is their excuse. I won't even say to not succeed, but it's their excuse to not even try to succeed in many cases. And like I said, in those types of situations, I want to be an inspiration. I, I, I want them to look at someone and say, wow, this person comes from an even worse situation than I came from. And look what he's been able to do and look how he's been able to do it. And what I enjoy doing, Molly, is using the things that I've learned from and making them applicable to other people's lives. Um, because I, I, I've learned the power of living a principled life. You know, you can, you can have a lot of different things going on in your life, but the principles are not going to change. Your circumstances may, but the principles won't change. I mean, and, and one of the things that has been a very simple principle, but something that has helped me so much is that, like that promise that I made to God, I'm just going to try to do the right thing. There's so much power in just trying to do the right thing. And I get it wrong a lot. I make so many mistakes just like everyone else. But that mistake isn't the end of the story for me. You know, I have these five lessons of life that I say, you know, these are five lessons of life that I've learned about making mistakes. And, you know, the, the, the first lesson about mistakes is that in life, you will learn lessons. I mean, like, and again, these are the five lessons that I think everyone should know, especially every young kid. I, I wish that every young kid could know these five lessons. Uh, the first lesson is that in life, you will learn lessons. That's just what a lot of life is about. And sometimes we don't accept that. We get so thrown off course because we have a bad experience or we make a mistake or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, life is really about learning lessons. Number two, in life, there are no mistakes. It's just lessons. I mean, yeah, I make a lot of mistakes, but every last one of those mistakes can become a lesson if I'm open to it. And there's been so much that I've learned by correcting my mistakes and receiving the lesson from that mistake that has helped me be where I am today. So that was the second lesson in life. Um, first lesson in life, you will learn lessons. Second lesson is that in life, there are no mistakes. It's just lessons. And the third lesson in life is this. A lesson not learned must be repeated. Right? And, 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 I, and I've wasted so much time in my own life repeating lessons over and over again. And it's almost like life is looking at me like, Kurt, I'm just trying to teach you something. Like, just learn this so that you can graduate and move to the next level. But a lot of us stay stuck in life because we're not learning the lesson that we're supposed to be learning. So a lesson not learned must be, must be repeated. And the fourth lesson is that if you don't learn a lesson the easy way, it gets harder. 
a lot of us, especially people like myself, you know, because we've been through so much or had such a hard time, you expect life to give you a break. But a lot of times life doesn't work that way. You don't just get a break. You have to create your own break, you know, a lot of times. Or hopefully you have someone who can support you and give you some guidance that can create a break for you. But if you don't learn a lesson the easy way, it only gets harder because life has to get harder to convince you to get fed up and finally change. Uh, and then the fifth and final lesson is that you will know that you learned your lesson when your actions change. Because there's so many times that, like I said, we won't learn the lesson. And so the situations and the circumstances don't change. But when you know that you really learned your lesson is when you stop doing that same thing, you stop repeating that same pattern that is, you know, causing you to remain stuck in your problems. So, yeah. So, um, you know, this is why I, I, I've been so appreciative of everything that I've been through. I wouldn't take one moment of it back because it has taught me how to navigate through life. And so far, I've been able to do it pretty successfully. And like I said, it doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes because I make just as many mistakes as anyone. It's just that I really learn from those mistakes. And I kind of relish in the fact that I'm that that mistake for me is going to turn into a great opportunity uh, at some point. It's just the way to live. Uh, I love it. I, uh, I want to share, you, you shared something with me. Um, be careful how we view our problems. They may be our biggest blessings and opportunities. And you had uh, five reasons uh, why problems happen in our lives. And would you share that please with listeners? Yeah. Um, well, it all started back when I was 23 and a guy who became somewhat of a mentor to me, he said, Curtis, look, I understand everything you've been through, but the best thing you can do in life, buddy, is just to figure out how life works. No, let me repeat that. He said, the best thing you can do in life is to find out how things work and then work them, you know? And I became fascinated with just the way life works, you know, you reap what you sow, different principles like that. And with all of the problems that I had been through and all the difficult situations, I was always trying to figure out how do I make this all work for me? And eventually I was able to put it into a context that, you know, I call it the five reasons why any problem happens. And I think that there's five categories that every problem that you ever had could fall under. And, uh, you know, uh, I say that problems happen for five reasons, um, to direct you, to inspect you, to correct you, to protect you, or perfect you. And whenever you have any issue, any problem in your life, if you can place it under one of those categories, your chances of seeing the blessing and the opportunity that's on the other side of that problem goes up tremendously versus you not seeing the purpose of that problem or what that purpose or what that problem was there to teach you. And you continue to repeat this vicious cycle of that very same problem. But yeah, problems will always either direct you, inspect you, correct you, protect you, or perfect you. 
That was spectacular. I want to really encourage listeners, um, and Curtis and I were talking about this, that we you hear the word problem. Someone thinks about an issue and it, it's very easy to judge it as a negative thing, which is fine. The awareness that each of us could um, elevate to say, huh, is this, I mean, how do I know what's good, what's bad? And if we can give ourselves permission to, to see it for what it is and to see the gift in it and for Everyone listening, whether it's your problem or some, seeing someone with it, if you can be the person that helps people look at it as something that we can turn the, you know, the lemon into the lemonade um, situation, it would just really overnight instantaneously, I think, change a lot about how people come together and how they see the challenges that we have. Um, so I really appreciate that. I think for you, Curtis, you know, it may not really have been an option. Um, and I'm, I'm really overwhelmed with the thinking part of how you, you know, in your own mind have figured this all out. And is that something that just comes naturally to you? Like you're, you're a strategy guy, you can knit it together, you're synthesizing. Was that something you watched someone do? I mean, is this a natural talent that you have? It's really remarkable. No, I, I don't think there's necessarily something that's natural. I think that I'm a... Um, I'm the type of person who, uh, instead of complaining, I'm going to do something about it. Um, instead of worrying, I'm, I'm going to get something done and, you know, get to the bottom of a situation. It's not necessarily the way I'm built because I can't say that I've always done that. But I just learned to appreciate difficulty, you know, and when you look at some of the biggest businesses in the world, they're only so big because they solve some of the biggest problems in the world. Look at an Amazon. Just think about the problems that they solve for customers. And that's why they're the biggest, one of the biggest businesses in the world. And, 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 and I kind of take that same approach towards life. Some of our biggest problems have some of our biggest blessings and our biggest opportunities right on the other side of them. But many of us never get to the other side of those problems. We stay stuck on the negative side and we never view that problem in its proper perspective. You know, I have this, this, um, you know, I thought about writing this book called The Problem with Problems. And <laughs> my theory is that the problem with problems is that we view problems the wrong way. We see problems, uh, almost we view problems the way we view a disease or illness or sickness, and we want to get away from it. We don't want to confront it. We don't want to deal with it. We just want to cure from it. But a lot of times to run away from that problem means that you're running away from your opportunity. And so many of us miss out on so much that life has for us simply because we never confront our problems and learn from them and get to the other side so that we could, for lack of better words, inherit what that problem came to bring us. Yeah, this is the doing the work, folks. And, and folks have asked me the, and you can feel it. You can feel it in a Curtis, the folks who are grounded in the sense of self, which doesn't mean, you know, we love everything about ourselves, but we've kind of come to grips with it. And the ability to be honest with oneself about what are some of the issues that I've got to confront, what are the things that I'm creating or how am I, you know, we've heard me on the show say, how am I part of the problem? And then how can I be more part of the solution? Um, it's really, I'm hearing just a great sense of will and commitment to that. Um, that's just help you to be you. Curtis, when you describe, if you describe yourself, 
you know, how, how do you describe yourself? You know, in a, in a few bullets or lines, I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, you know, someone asked me a long time ago, if I had to choose one word to describe myself, what would that one word be? And I thought about it for a quick second and I said balanced. You know, um, I think that I've become a pretty balanced person. Um, I've experienced the lowest of the lows and I've experienced some of the highest of the highs. And I think because there's been such a plethora of both of those things, I've learned to look at it with a pretty even perspective. I don't get too high with the highs. Um, I don't get too low with the lows. Uh, and what I appreciate about it is that it's created a range that I have that has enabled me to use that range to impact other people's lives. You know, I, I'll give you a quick example. One day I was riding home from the city, which is about 45 minutes from my home out in Long Island. And I get a phone call. And it's this guy that I grew up with. And he says, Curtis, uh, I haven't spoken to you in a while, but you've always been someone that I just said, if I was ever in a bad situation, a really bad situation, I would call because I trust you and I trust your motive. He said, man, I'm about to do something that I know isn't right, but I, 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 I just wanted to call you. And long story short, he said, I, I'm going to kill my brother. <laughs> and and I said, you're, you're going to do what? He said, yeah, we've been beefing about this. And, you know, he had his gun and he said, I know my brother's ready for me. So one of us is going to die today. And I just said to him, I said, man, do, do you understand how you sound? I said, now, before we, before I even say anything, I said, tell me what you're going to go and kill your brother for. Well, we got into an argument and this happened. And then he said this in front of everybody. I said, so you're going to kill your own brother because of your own pride. And his life is worth your pride. You can't put your pride aside for a second to let someone that you've known all your life live. I said, man, listen, look, I know we haven't spoken in a while and I hope you don't take offense to it, but that's probably one of the most selfish things that I've ever heard anyone say. And I said, listen, everybody knows you're a tough guy. You don't have to go prove that to everybody. And to me, it just sounds like your ego's in the way and he hurt your pride. So you're going over there so that everybody can know that you didn't let him get away with that. I said, but at the end of the day, one thing I promise you is that you're going to regret it tomorrow. And even if you don't regret it tomorrow, cause you're so hard headed, you know, you're hard hearted rather. I said, you'll probably regret it later on in your life and it'll continue to eat away at you until it just rips you apart. I guarantee you that thing. And um, we had more of a conversation, but at the end of the day, I mean, the conversation lasted all of 15 minutes. He ended up, I ended up convincing him to go over to his brother and apologize and give him a hug. And they started forming one of the close they, to even to today and this happened years ago but they're as close as they've ever been um i literally hang up the phone with that guy and and i get a call from an owner of a professional team and 
a, a professional sports league and not the NFL. Uh, and, and anyways, he's going through an issue, not only in his business, you know, but also with a situation that they're having on a team. And he is telling me that he just wanted to run something by me just to get a head check from someone who he can trust their opinion. And um, long story short, I told him, I said, well, I think you're thinking about this, you know, from a wrong perspective. He says, oh, yeah, why? And I tell him why. And he says, well, I totally disagree with that, Curtis. I said, hey, you could disagree with it, but I, I guarantee you, if you do what you say you're going to do, not only are you going to lose the trust of your team, but it's going to also affect your business in this way. And the more we talk, the more I begin to win him over. And long story short, he decided that he was going to apply the advice that I gave him, and it worked out beautifully. And he ended up starting like a whole uh, charitable organization behind uh, the conversation that we had because he thought it was so effective. And after that, I called my wife and I told her, I said, listen, I just had this guy call me from the hood I grew up in who was about to go kill his brother. And I had this billionaire call me for some advice about his business. And I, you know, there's just something that I feel grateful about that I wanted to share with you that like they both took my advice and I think it's going to lead to much better results. But my point being, Molly, is that all that I've been through and all that I've been able to experience has created a range in me. And it has given me an understanding that has created this, um, I think, this ability to see outside of myself and to put my other, myself in other people's shoes and somewhat be able to lead them out of their own woods. And that's just a quality that I'm very grateful to have and to see the impact and how I'm literally able to save lives. And you wouldn't believe how many people I've talked out of suicide and how many people I've talked out of doing something that was going to either ruin their career or damage their career or whatever it may be. And I tell you, I, I, I literally, it humbles me that I'm someone who is able to serve other people like that. This is, um, I have the biggest smile because you know, people talk about this, say it's skillfully thing. And I think the number one thing missing and uh, makes it hard for people is in fact, what you said is putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and um, to have the courage to do that, to have the groundedness to not be worried about our own ego and self, but to be able to genuinely be in service to others is the ultimate in leading. And uh, kudos to you and, you know, for all the folks in your universe are so fortunate that you um, are there, you know, to be friend and to be someone who, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, hey, you may not want to hear this, but Kurt's going to tell you what he thinks you need to hear, you know, and I think that that's the ultimate in respect um, for another human being. Um, you know, th this, uh, there's so much to cover. I would love to spend a little time just going forward because I, I can, you know, I get the sense that there's many things that are interesting to you. So just for listeners, you have this, you know, amazing career. People might think, da -da -da -da, that's it. So have, you know, how did you um, 
Comic-Con Comic the business and just how, how do you think about your impact going forward just to help people think about how you are continuing to develop yourself um, and your business? Um, well, you know, it's interesting because my background and my playing career has instilled in me, I would say 90% of the principles that I found to be so effective in my business career. And, you know, I always, I had one goal when I went to the NFL since, you know, like I said, the NFL just wasn't my, well, I won't say the NFL, but I'll say like playing football wasn't my dream. It wasn't what I wanted to do. But like I say, I saw it as a vehicle that I could use. And that's how I gained my love for the game and for the NFL and, 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 and everything that it is, the organization that it is. Um, but when I went into the league, I remember saying to myself, my goal wasn't necessarily to win Super Bowls or to be the MVP or all of those types of things. I wasn't even thinking about the Hall of Fame. I didn't even know that it was within my reach, to be honest with you. Um, but the one thing that I knew that I had the ability to do was however long my career lasted, I said to myself, I, my number one goal, my only goal basically is to finish this game with a name that's worth more than anything that I make while I'm playing in the NFL. And to have achieved that, in my business career, because now, and, and it's, and I always wanted, when people think of the name Curtis Martin, I wanted them to associate that name with things, with words like trust and integrity and character and hard work, determination, discipline, whatever those positive business qualities were, that was what I wanted people to associate with my name. And the... Uh, receptiveness, the, the, the way different constituencies and people have received me after my career with, you know, some things that I just dreamed about doing. I said, well, you know what, let me apply these principles, make these calls. I have the access because of the celebrity that I had. And I just used that access to kind of create my dreamland of business. Not saying that everything has gone perfectly, but it took me some time to really learn business at a different level. I, I surrounded myself who, with people who were where I wanted to be. I've gotten close to a lot of the NFL and NBA owners. Um, I know a lot of them very personally. I've, I've um, developed relationships with some of them where they're like big brothers or father figure to it, you know, uh, to me. And, um, and I've done the same thing, you know, with, you know, CEOs of big companies and things like that. And I wanted to educate myself. That was the first thing that I did when I retired was I committed myself to being educated. And um, just the way I committed myself to the game, uh, I made that same type of commitment to surrounding myself with the right people in the right situations where I could be educated to be the best businessman possible. And uh, so that's been the foundation and the strength of 
everything that I've done since I've retired. That's so wonderful. Do you, um, when you think of what needs to happen um, with leadership in the future, thoughts, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of folks, perhaps in organizations, not having the best experiences. I'm not saying the leaders are bad people, but I, I, uh, I would say that there's a lot of upside for better cultures, for people being able to be who they are, to be able to say what they think needs to be said. Uh, some thoughts on what you think needs to shift uh, in leadership. In le- things that need to shift in leadership. Huh. Well, one of the first things I'll say about being a good leader is that I think that good leadership starts with self-leadership. You know, I, I think that the best leaders that I've seen, uh, they are really good with leading themselves, number one. You know, um, I, I think life is always going to be challenging and leadership is always going to be challenging, but the most difficult person to lead is yourself. You know, and I, I found that your potential to lead others is a direct result of how you lead yourself. And so um, that's, that's, that's something that I believe that more people would really make sure that they just have themselves together and that they're leading themselves the right way. I think that it would help them to become better leaders. Um, I also think that when you're a leader, um, there's certain sacrifices that you have to be willing to make. And I believe that the leader goes first. I mean, if you just take a situation like, um, I don't know, forgiveness, right? And, And I'm just putting it in this context just to give it a visual. Um, say, you know, with my marriage, if, if um, you know, my wife and I have an argument and we're not speaking to each other or we have that, you know, you know, that tension that you feel in the house <laughs> and both people are walking around the house and, you know, everyone's being short with one another and giving one word answers and things like that. Well, you know, early on in our marriage, that was something that I didn't want to have. And so I believe as a leader, you know, I believe we're both leaders in our marriage, Um, but there's times where I have to lead. There's times where she has to lead. And, but me considering myself a a, a leader, I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to walk around and wait till she apologizes to me. Even if she was wrong, you know what? I'm going to make the first move because I believe that leaders go first. And I'm just using that, situations in the marriage that to I believe those same principles, same principles apply in a business. You know, I think leaders need to go first. Leaders need to make the, 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 the sacrifice. I think leaders need to lead by example. You know, one of the things when I played uh, in the NFL, um, you know, when I was with the New York Jets, every player on that team knew that they had to answer to me or Benny Testaverde. And Vinny and I had very high standards. Vinny and I were the captains of the team, but we played with pain. We played when we were injured. 
We were the first ones in. We were the last ones out. We set the tone for that entire locker room, for that entire organization. You know, and I believe that when you're a leader, you know, it gives you so much strength to influence others when they see you doing it yourself. And I think leadership is a lot about influence. You know, um, good leaders, they have the ability to influence people and they have the ability to communicate in a way that is synergistic, in in a way that is sympathetic or even empathetic at times, because you have to be able to move people as a leader. You know, people who follow you, they follow you because they admire you. They admire you, inspire them in some way. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a big believer of being a servant. I'm, I'm a big believer in servant leadership, you know, where you're not necessarily sitting up on top of the mountain yelling down commands to everyone. No, you're down in the valley with everyone and you're leading them up to, you know, the mountaintop. Uh, that's my uh, thoughts on leadership. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I, uh, you did share something with me about a not so skillful uh, communication situation early on. Curtis, would you share that? Um, and it had quite a profound, very profound impact on the trajectory of your life. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to leave early, a year early, and go into the NFL, or the wise thing for me to do was to stay in school and play another year, simply because I played less than half of my college career. I was injured every year and missed at least half the games. And then the last year that I played in college, I only played one game and got hurt in the second game and missed the entire season after that. So it was just you know, common sense to come back another year and try to do better. So I was just, I didn't really like college. I didn't like school um, too much. And I didn't want to stay in school, but I knew that it was the wise thing to do. So I said, let me just at least go talk to my coach. I think he could probably give me the best advice. I can't go to my mom. You know, what's she going to say? I didn't really know anyone who was going to give me the right advice. So I figured, look, this guy has coached a lot of people who have gone into the NFL. Let me go and speak to him about it. So I set up a meeting with him. I go to his office and we sit down. We have about a half an hour before he has his press conference at 12 o'clock. And I just, you know, I start the conversation and say, well, coach, I'm here because I just wanted to get some insight from you. Um, I know you've coached a lot of people who have gone into the NFL and you know, I've just been thinking about, you know, I, do I come back to, you know, school next year or do I try to go into the NFL? Just wanted to get your opinion. And he literally snaps out on me. What are you even talking about the NFL? You can't even survive in college. You haven't played a full season here. What makes you think you could survive a 16-game season in the NFL? That is such a bonehead decision for you to even be thinking about. I'm like, well, coach, you know, it's, it's just a thought. And I just needed some advice. What do you need advice for, Curtis? You don't even need advice for something that, that's so dumb. Like, there's not one person in the world who would tell you that you should even take a chance and go into the NFL. That is such a bonehead decision. I can't even believe that you're thinking about something like that, Curtis. Matter of fact, 
I, he said, I have a press conference in the half an hour at 12 o'clock. If this is what you're thinking, I'm going to let the entire Pittsburgh press understand the bonehead decision that Curtis Martin is even contemplating. I can't even believe that you came into my office and asked me something like this. I mean, he was literally just disgusted with me. And the, and the look he had on his face and the way he was talking to me. And I mean, it was, it was very belittling. Um, and understand that at this time, I'm what, 20 years old? You know, I wasn't the Curtis that I am today. I wasn't as refined and respectful and all that. You know, I was this young kid out of the streets of Pittsburgh. And so I'm like doing my best to keep my mouth shut. And I'm just listening to him talk. And when he finished, when he finally stopped cursing me out and everything, I just said, well, you know what, coach? Um, I'm, I'm not going to say what I want to say to you because I respect my elders and I respect you as a coach. I said, and, you know, I just came here seeking advice. I just wanted you to tell me that, yeah, this is why it makes sense for you to come back to school or whatever it may be. I said, but the way you talked to me, coach, I think was just extremely disrespectful, but I'm not going to be disrespectful back to you. But what I will tell you, coach, is that it may not have came in the package that I wanted it to come in because I thought this was going to be a nice, peaceful conversation. I said, but you gave me my answer. And the one thing that I'm very clear about is that I won't be coming back here playing for you next year. For me, I'm either going home or I'm going into the NFL. And he said, well, I'm about to go tell the entire press this. And, I mean, they talked about me so bad in the press. Every news station, every newspaper. I even have some of the articles. I mean, they, they talked about me really bad. And, um, you know, I went into the NFL my rookie year. Parcells took a chance on me. And I won the most valuable player of the year award and won the rushing title um, my rookie year. And he told me and all the coaches told me that I would never even survive in the NFL. I couldn't stay healthy in the NFL. And that pushed me to work as hard as I ever have. It pushed me to correct everything that was wrong. You know, going back to my direct you, inspect you, correct you, protect you, perfect you philosophy. It corrected me because it made me get my stuff together. It really, because now I'm on a, I'm on a ramp. I'm like, no, no, he's not going to, I'm not going to let him win, you know? And then it inspected me because it made me really take a, a real look at myself because a lot of the stuff that he was saying about me was very true. A lot of the stuff that he said to the media, a lot of the stuff the other coaches said about me in the media was very true. You just, you just shouldn't have said that about me. <laughs> at least that's the way I felt about it back at 20 years old. And then it, corre it corrected me because I corrected my, you know, I started working hard. You know, I, I started being that first one there training and that last one to leave. Like I said, directed me because had he not done that to me, Molly, had he just given me a peaceful answer, I would have come back and played another year of college because that just made the most sense to do. That was, it was almost common sense. And at the end of the day, that conversation I had with him protected me because who knows what would have happened if I went back for another year in college, living in Pittsburgh, 
being exposed. I, it was right down the street from where I grew up at. You know what I mean? I just didn't need to be in that environment. I needed to get away. One thing, I definitely wouldn't have been the rookie of the year in 1995. That's for sure. <laughs> um, I definitely wouldn't, went, wouldn't have went to the Pro Bowl that year. You know, those are two things that wouldn't have happened. And who knows what path my life would have taken after that. And fifth and finally, it perfected me in a sense. Not that I'm perfect in any way, but I believe that life is a constant perfecting. It's almost like life is smoothing out the edges. You know, I was very rough around the edges at that time. And uh, I feel like that was the beginning of me, you know, smoothing my life out a little bit. Wow. I, you know, I have to, for a 20 year old where you were to keep it together and not like punch out your coach, I think actually it was pretty impressive and just, it's not lost on me. The, the role reversal of you would expect the senior person to be more skillful and more metered and, and really thinking about what's right for the individual and not the young person holding it together. So, I mean, that, that just all speaks for itself and, you know, thank goodness for that gift and uh, to help you to be where you are. Um, you just, you just never know kind of what's good, what's bad. Um, oh, we could but go on forever. Know, but, you know, you know, that, that's just to interject really quick. I, I, I think that what most of us don't get a lot of times and myself included is that these are the key opportunities in life. You know what I mean? Like what if I didn't respond to that situation? Where would my life be? You know, um, yeah, maybe I would have made it to the NFL at some point. Um, I, but I just highly doubt that my life would be on a trajectory and the path that it's on right now. Had I not been willing to challenge and do the work and challenge myself to be a better person and to do things in a better way. Had I not stepped up and had I shrunk back in that moment who knows what would have happened. And that's where I say we have to be careful about how we view our problems because hidden behind some of our biggest problems are some of our biggest opportunities. Yeah. Words for the wise. Uh, two more questions for you as we wrap, Curtis. Um, what would you like for your kids? What would I like for my kids? Um. You know, I have two daughters and I could care less what they know about my football career or even my business career. What I'm concerned about most is that I teach them, my wife and I teach them the skills that they need to be successful women, successful human beings. Um, I always say that it's not about what you accomplish in life, but it's about who you become um, in the midst of those accomplishments. And I want them to view me as a father and look at me and say, this is a great example of a man. This is the type of man that I want to eventually marry. Of course, when they get much more mature, when they're like 60 years old and they're ready to get married, you know? <laughs> they can't get married before that. But, you know, as they mature, I, the best thing for me, my dream is that I can be the best example 
for them and to them of what to expect that, you know, like I take my daughters out on dates, you know, we'll get dressed up. I take them out. I, I teach them, you know, wait, wait until I come around and open the door for you. You know, when I walk with them on a sidewalk, I say, you know, whenever you're walking with a man, let, let him walk on the outside of the sidewalk. You know, I just teach them very simplistic things. And it's funny because, you know, they'll be walking with someone or walking with a boy or whatever, and they'll walk on the inside of the sidewalk, you know, and they'll remind my wife of different things, you know, um, and, and it's just so, and they'll remind me of different things. Like, daddy, you didn't open the door, you know, um, and, and so uh, these things are so important to me. There's, I mean, my, my two daughters, they're, they're, they're the light of my life, and to be able to um, make the right impressions upon them, I, I, I enjoy treating my wife the way I treat her because I want them to witness this. You know, there's times where I'll get up in the morning and we'll be all, I'll be down in the kitchen and my wife may be making breakfast or something and I'll come down and I'll, I'll say, where, where, where's the best woman in the world at? You know, and my daughters, they get such a kick out of that. And I'll be like, there she goes. She's cooking breakfast for us. And I'll go over and I'll kiss my wife on the cheek. Best woman in the world. Don't ever forget that. Your mom's the best woman in the world. You know, and I, I want them to understand things like that and appreciate things like that as they grow up. So I don't know if I gave a direct answer of exactly what I want for them, but that's the way I think about them. Oh, yeah, it was more than perfect. It was more than perfect. Um, the topic of forgiveness, what's forgiveness to you, Curtis? Forgiveness. Um, let me think about that for two seconds. Okay. Um, I think forgiveness is a very interesting quality or characteristic. And I think a lot of us are not really good at forgiveness. And I think that there's two types of forgiveness. I think there's transactional forgiveness and I think there's unilateral forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness is, you know, it's like a transaction. You ask me for, your, for my forgiveness, I give you my forgiveness. Or I ask you to forgive me and you say, okay, Kurt, I forgive you. That's a transaction. I gave you something and you gave me back something. Uh, the, the type of forgiveness that I think is very important to learn in life is unilateral forgiveness. Because unilateral forgiveness says, you know what? I'm giving you forgiveness whether or not you're sorry. I'm giving you forgiveness whether or not you apologize because I realize that me holding a grudge against you is going to impact me in a negative way more than it's going to impact you. So I'm, I'm very big on walking in forgiveness. I think that it's one of the most powerful qualities to possess because I've seen so many lives just torn up from the inside out in bitterness because people have not forgiven people of things that may have even happened to them when they were kids or happened years ago. And at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do about that. And even if that person does ask for your forgiveness, they still can't take back the action that they did to first offend you. And so that's why I think unilateral forgiveness is so important. And uh, I'll just tell you that 
the reason why it's so important to me is because, again, my mother was a single parent and she raised me and she was a woman trying to teach a young boy how to be a man. And her understanding of how to do that was to be as tough as possible. I got so many beatings. It would have been way beyond child abuse um, today. And it literally hurts my mother's heart when we talk about it because she knows that she was almost unfairly uh, tough on me. And it, and it just kind of, it, it makes her tear up when we talk about it. But I'm very grateful for it because it helped me become a more disciplined person. Um, but the, the, the point that I want to make is that a lot of my mother's anger comes from the abuse and all of the things that she had been through. And I totally understood it. My mother has been through hell. Like she's literally my hero because she has endured so much and sacrificed so much just so that she could help me become who I am today. She is definitely my hero. Now, with that being said, my father was gone by the time I was five or six years old. I remember my mother, I remember the exact day that my mother finally forgave my father for all of the negative things that he did to her and me. And her big thing is he abused me. He left us. I had to struggle. I had to work three jobs. I had to leave you home by yourself. She was so resentful and bitter towards him because of that. And one day, this is after I'm in the NFL for about six, seven years, we're riding through my old neighborhood and we see my father standing at the bus stop. And I look over, I say, mom, there go my dad. And she's like, well, what you telling me for? I said, because he's probably going home and we're going in that direction. Why don't we just drop him off? And she lays into me. She curses me out so bad. My mother had never cursed me out that bad. I mean, she's cursed me out before, but never that bad. And, um, well, she was finished and we're sitting in line at this red light and he doesn't even recognize that we're there. I just said, mom, listen, you know, I've never talked back to you. I've never disrespected you, but just grant me this one time to just tell you exactly how I feel about this. I said, mom, you've been bitter my entire life. I said, I don't really know what love is coming from like a mother son relationship because I know that you love me. I know, I know that clearly, but you've never shown me love. I said, you've always been so angry and so bitter and so hard on me that I only know you love me because you're my mother and you take care of me. I said, but other than that, mother, mom, you've been so bitter because of that man standing right there. I said, and look at him. He doesn't have one idea that you are still this bitter about that marriage that was 20 something years ago. I said, mom, I haven't even gotten to experience your gentle side my entire life. I said, how much longer are you going to allow that man to ruin your life? I said, that's my one question to you, mom. And she looked at me like she wanted to say something and she just started to pull off as the light turned green. And we went through, we went past them and went through the light. And then she pulled over. She was like, go ask your dad if he needs a ride. And so I'm excited. I, I get out of the car and I'm like, 
hey, dad, dad, he looks at me. I said, you need a rat? He's like, yeah, he comes. And I get in the back seat because I want him to sit in the front seat with my mother. I want her to feel the full, you know, whatever of this situation. And they have one of the most pleasant conversations after 22, 23 years. We finally get him to his home. She drops him off. He walks up the steps and goes into his apartment building. And as soon as he shuts the door, she turns around to me in the back seat and starts bawling. I mean, she, I, I haven't seen my mother cry this hard in so long. And I just said, Mom, what's wrong? She says, her, I feel like I just dropped off a big bag of bricks. And she said, oh, my gosh, I wish I would have forgiven him and had a conversation with him years ago. And I tell you, that one act of forgiveness has had such a profound effect on my mother's life and on our relationship. I get to experience my mother in a way that I never knew her growing up. And it's, it's such a beautiful thing. And it made me really appreciate the power of forgiveness. And so um, that's why forgiveness is so important to me. I, I've seen it at work in real time so many times. And I use that. And to me, walking in forgiveness is my superpower. It's really hard to, for me to carry a grudge. Oh, I, am, I am just in awe exponentially. Curtis, uh, you've shared so generously. What was it like for you to share your journey today? Um, I enjoyed it. I mean, um, as you could tell for me, um, it, it, it's something that I'm grateful for. Um, it's not something that's hard for me to talk about, no matter how devastating some of the events that I've been through may have been. Um, and, and it's because I have such an appreciation for life. You know, I, I've just recently, this is literally just last week, um, I, I teach this class. And one of the guys who's like, everybody knows him. He's like the famous one out of this group. Um, not famous, literally, but just because he speaks up and he says the things and he asks the, the questions that everybody want to ask. They're just afraid. I mean, he's like fearless and he's such a good person. But, he, you know, he's a troubled person and he's struggling with different um, addictions and um, phobias and different things like that. And so he but he's so courageous. And so everyone on the call has such a profound respect for him. He called me Monday night because he was struggling. He struggles from uh, uh, depression and anxiety at a very high rate. And um, I, I talk him through it and he just says, Curtis, I'm so grateful for you, man. And thank you. I feel so much better. And I'll see you on a call on Wednesday because Wednesday is when I teach this class. And um, he didn't make it to Wednesday. On Tuesday, he had a heart attack and died. And I, you know, I think about things like that and how a lot of times we're suffering internally because of our own bitterness or unforgiveness. And this is something that I had spoken to him about that Monday night before he died on Tuesday. And I'm telling him, like, man, listen, your family, your brothers, your kids and everyone, let all that go, man. And he, and he, he genuinely, I really feel like he was just like, you know what, Curtis, you're right. I've been in the process of doing that, but I'm going to get up early tomorrow and I'm going to start doing it even better. He was just so encouraged. 
And who knew that he wouldn't even make the call on Wednesday? And so, um, you know, I guess my message to other people is that, you know, life is too short. And I think we take life for granted so much. We, we just assume that we have tomorrow. But tomorrow's not promised for any of us. And I always tell people, like, you know, how old you are, it's not determined by when you were born. How old you are isn't determined by your birth date. Uh, I think how old you are is determined by your death date. You know, like I talked to this guy on Monday. He's one year older than I am. He's 49. Now, he's 49, but he only had one day to live. So he's really old. You know, you could be 20 years old, but if you're going to die when you're 30 years old, then you're pretty old. But if you're 50 years old and you're going to live till you're 100 years old, then you're still pretty young. And so that's why I say, like, how old you are isn't really determined by your birthday. It's determined by your death date. Now, I talked to this guy on Monday. I didn't know that he was, you know, metaphorically, like, 120 years old, like, on his last leg. I didn't know he was going to die the next day. But I think we take life for granted. I think we take situations for granted. We take forgiveness for granted. There's so many people who may have died not forgiven. I mean, he, that guy died not forgiving a lot of people. A lot of people didn't forgive him. And now they wish they had the opportunity to just say, man, I love you. And like I say, life is too short. And I'll close with this. I'll just say this one last thing. I, I studied bitterness at one point because I wanted to understand somewhat the anatomy of bitterness, what makes a person bitter. And I found this study, uh, I believe, like some doctors from Yale, some psychologists and psychiatrists from Yale or one of those universities like Harvard, they did this study. I believe they studied like 180 people over a period of two years, I think. And what they found about, about bitterness, and the, the whole study was just to figure out why do people become bitter? And after all of their studies and after two years and all these people and interviewing them over and over again, what they found is that people don't become bitter because of what they experience in life, but they become bitter because of how they remember what they experienced in life. And I just think that that's such an interesting study because really your bitterness is tied up in your memory. It's almost like, and until you change that memory or the way you view that situation, each hindrance to you forgiving. So when I was trying to convince my mother to give my father a ride home and just forgive him and have a conversation with him, the one thing I forgot to say about that story is that after I spoke my piece to her and I said, I, I said this to her, I said, mom, think about this. If he was there for 20 something years, do you think I would have turned out the way I am? Do you think that I would be the man that I am today with 20 years of his influence on me? Do you think that you and I would have the relationship that we have and enjoy the life that we live now? if he was there for 22, 23 years. And that was what really changed her perception because now 
oh no, he didn't leave us out to dry. He didn't just for, you know, abandon us. No, it was good that he was gone because if he wasn't gone, then all of this wouldn't have happened. You are a gift, my friend, empowering us to forgive, to make the most of life, to not take it for granted um, and showing us what it is to dig so deep to find your true self. So um, I really can can't I say one thing, yeah, please. Let me just say one thing real quick, just to interject. And you know how you know when you forgave someone? Uh, Molly, when you truly forgave someone, because, you know, you have that question like, well, how do you know that you really forgave someone or that you really forgive someone? You know that you really forgave someone when you stop seeking to retaliate. See, and, 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 I'm, and I'm talking about retaliate in any middle way. Like a lot of times we'll just say a smart comment just because we know we're going to get under their skin. If you are still doing that, you have not fully forgiven someone or if you're just taking little jabs at someone just to remind them of what they did to you. Yeah. You didn't forgive that person yet. So you know that you forgave someone when you cease uh, seeking retaliation. Uh, It's spectacular. You're spectacular. You have given us uh, lessons on living, you know, how we can all play the top of our game. You know, the world is just better for you being a part of it. And uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of the solution, Curtis. If I can be helpful in any way, you let me know. I am cheering for you. You take good care, my friend. You too. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Oh my God. So amazing. My thought for the week. Thank you, Curtis. When change is necessary, not to change is destructive. And that is a wrap. Thank you folks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share the show. Amplify Curtis's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. 
And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 